Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Go ahead and make your way in here. Grab a seat. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you uh, that you have preserved your church for 2,000 years. I thank you that we, uh, 2,000 years down the line, have the benefit of looking backwards and seeing success of your church when they're faithful and failure, uh, sometimes massive failure of your church, and yet you remain faithful. The gates of hell have not prevailed against your church. So I pray that uh, we will be encouraged as we continue to look uh, at church history. We would develop a love for it, not just because we love history as a subject, but because we love you and we love your church, uh, and pray that you would keep us faithful. As uh, so many have failed in the past, we pray that we would not, that we would be faithful to you, that we would advance your kingdom, we would preach the gospel, and we would stand on truth in an age that doesn't. So we pray for this time and pray in your son's name, amen. Okay, good morning. Our carpet, carpet is gone, so my shoes are a bit uh, sticking to this wood. Welcome. We are leaving the Middle Ages. Everyone, like, when is the Reformation? The answer is next week, technically, so sorry. We're, we're, this, in this lesson, we are slowly leaving, but we're still kind of there. This is kind of a hinge lesson. So we've been in the Middle Ages. We've been looking at uh, things like the Crusades, been looking at people like Anselm and Thomas Aquinas, scholasticism, right, all the big thinkers. And then we're uh, next week starting Martin Luther, right, where most of Protestants start church history 500 years ago, not 2,000 years ago. Like there was Jesus and then some stuff. And then, you know, Martin Luther told the Catholics to stuff it, right? Right? And then we started. So we are, we are kind of transitioning. This is a hinge lesson where we're going to look at what was kind of happening in the church that led eventually to Martin Luther. Uh, revolutions uh, do not happen out of nowhere. So American Revolution, George Washington is a major or a colonel or whatever in the British Army in the French and Indian War. Did he and all the other guys just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm feeling rebellion? No. They were taxing us, taxing our tea. How dare they, right? The Boston Massacre, there was philosophical movements, you know, inalienable individual rights, things like that, uh, were all stirring that eventually overflowed into the American Revolution. And it's the same with the Reformation. Notice with the American Revolution, there's different realms of society, uh, economic, philosophical, you know, unfairness, government overreach, things like that, that are all kind of brewing. It's the same with the Reformation. So today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what was happening in kind of the century, century and a half leading up to the Reformation. What were the seeds that were in the ground that would eventually overflow into the Reformation? And we're going to look at five things today. We're going to look at the corruption of the church. Jeff gave a whole lesson, so that will be somewhat brief. Corruption of the church. Uh, social issues happening uh, in the century, the 14th century in particular. People, actually figures pushing for reform as uh, the third factor. Renaissance humanism, kind of the, the, the philosophical movement of the day, getting back to the classics, back to the sources, and then technological advancements. So all five of these things are the, the primary contributors to what will uh, kind of overflow into the Reformation. So Let's jump in. Corruption of the church. There's a picture right there. Uh, can anybody read? Does anybody know French? I know, and it don't, I'm sure you won't raise your hand because of American persecution. You won't like that. So uh, that, if you can read French on the left, that's bread, pain, pain. They don't say the end. They say, uh, right? Pain de pauvre. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Yeah, a little bit of end. Now that's bread for the poor on the right. Does anybody know what that says on the right? 
alms for those in purgatory. Yeah, so that is an offering, uh, kind of our giving box in the back. That, I took that picture. That is in a medieval church in uh, the south of France. We were there with my wife and her grandmother who has a house there. And that is so you can give your offerings, uh, bread for the poor, or you can get some relatives out of purgatory. You could pay, get them out of purgatory. Uh, so that, that is an example of kind of the selling of salvation that would be really prevalent in the 14th, uh, 13th, 14th century leading up to the Reformation. So corruption of the church. Jeff gave a whole lesson on the, the papacy and the corruption of the church, so we won't dive uh, that deep into it. You can go back and listen to his lesson from a few weeks ago. But we saw uh, the high point of uh, papal power. The Pope's power was with Pope Innocent uh, III. That was around the 12th century, who basically that was the day when the Pope was more powerful than any king. Right? If a king steps out of line, the Pope says, you know what, you're excommunicated. And the king says, uh, well, I don't want to go to hell. And the Pope says, too bad, do what I say. And then he's ruling, right? And then uh, we had the high point and it falls off very, very, very rapidly. So Innocent III, and then afterwards, kings begin to kind of call the Pope's bluff. You know, Pope would excommunicate a king, and then he would have the Pope, like, kidnapped or something. And then we have this long period where uh, puppet popes are kind of set up just to basically do the king's will. And then that eventually culminates in what we looked at again in Jeff's lesson, the Avignon Papacy in the 14th century, where we have eight popes in a row that move from Rome Right? The Pope is just a bishop of Rome that eventually takes authority over the whole church. And he moves from actually where he's supposed to be governing, the spiritual center of Christianity, where Paul and Peter both uh, are martyred, moves from Rome to the south of France, the beautiful regions of France where they are primarily sold out to political concerns. This is the, the period where they're most obviously just serving uh, the kings that have appointed them. They're raising taxes on their people uh, to build castles and to pay for luxurious living and things like that. So uh, I have a quote here from Petrarch, who's a Renaissance poet. He's the one who calls this period the Babylonian captivity of the church. Again, Jeff mentioned this. So he, he is reporting on this time when uh, the popes and their entourage and the priests that are around them are just living these lavish lives in France where they're neglecting their spiritual duties in Rome. I am now living in France in the Babylon of the West. Here reign the successors of the poor fishermen of Galilee. They have strangely forgotten their origin. I am astounded as I recall their predecessors to see these men loaded with gold and clad in purple, boasting of the spoils of princes and nations to see luxurious palaces and heights crowned with uh, fortifications instead of a boat turns downward for shelter. We seem to be among the princes or the kings of the Persians and the Parthians before whom we must fall down and worship and whom we cannot approach except to present or except presents be offered. O ye unkept, uneducated old men, is it for you or is it for this that you labored? Uh, is it for this that you have sown the fields of the Lord and watered it with your blood? So that last line, he's turning back and looking at the apostles, these uneducated fishermen from Galilee and saying, is this what you gave your lives for? These men that aren't following your lead, serving the people preaching the gospel, but rather building great palaces for themselves, neglecting their duty completely. And uh, so we have that period, the, the Avignon papacy. And then after that, it gets worse, right? We have that p weird period where there's two popes and then three popes and they're all excommunicating each other. It's just a mess. So that's kind of the story of what's happening before. And even within that, we have incredible, incredible moral corruption 
in the church. So the papal corruption is pretty obvious, lust for power, political corruption, immorality. A lot of them have concubines and things like that. Uh, but there's actual uh, incredible moral laxity just uh, in the church as a whole and priests and bishops and things like that. Uh, quote there from Machiavelli, the nearer one got to Rome, again, the city that was meant to be the heart of the Roman Catholic church, the more corrupt or more corruption one found. So you see tons of things Buying and selling of church offices, you weren't made a priest or made a bishop because of your qualifications, right? Because of your holiness, your ability to preach the gospel or anything like that, but rather just because you purchased it. You see actually people holding multiple offices, right? The more prestige you can get, the more offices. So you have a priest who would also buy, you know, the office of bishop, things like that. People, uh, absenteeism, people avoiding their office, you just pay some kind of lackey to do your actual spiritual duties, you're off living luxurious lives. And then sexual morality, most priests, or not most, a lot of priests live with uh, concubines. Uh, why is that a bad thing? It's a bad thing in general, right? Not your wife that you're living with. Priests have also taken a vow of celibacy, right? So it's kind of, you know, double trouble on their part. Uh, but it was common in their day to have what was called a concubinage fee where they would pay to kind of keep their concubine. They'd be like, whoops, sorry, I messed up, but here's a fee, I will keep this concubine with me. And it's estimated that uh, a third of the priests in Germany had concubines. So this is common. And it's obvious, we'll talk about this. It's not as if it, this is all being kept secret. People can obviously see the moral corruption of the Catholic Church. Pre, uh, priests uh, were incredibly greedy. They had virtually unchecked power. They, could, uh, they had immunity in civil courts, so they couldn't be tried for uh, any sort of abuses. And most of them uh, had uh, just kind of a general ignorance of the scriptures. If it is a prestigious, luxurious post, when you get there, you're not, it takes an, an extra step to really dive in and say, I want to know theology, I want to know the scriptures, and I want to help uh, the people that I'm actually meant to help. So most of them, if you were to go to a priest, have just a really general ignorance of the things of God. But it's not just the priests, it's also uh, the lay people, the laity as well. There's incredible, just a, a lack of spiritual vitality in the people's lives. It's not just corruption at the top and a, a really you know, vibrant spiritual lives of the people. There is a lot of laxity there as well. In the Fourth Lateran Council, for instance, in 1215, it was demanded uh, that the people, uh, to, to be a Christian, to remain in the Roman Catholic Church, you had to go and take uh, communion. You had to go and take the Eucharist once a year, which... What does that say about the people if it's demanded? You have to at least, if, if, if to the members at Parkway, we said, look, you know, to, to be a member of Parkway, just come here one sermon a year and take communion once. What would that say about the members of Parkway? We're having to force them to come to church once, right? They're probably not, you know, very uh, spiritually uh, just on fire for the Lord and things like that. So you have it kind of from top to bottom. This is a time when superstition was really uh, widespread. There's even some occult practices happening and kind of the borderline worship of the saints and of Mary and things are at an all-time high. Uh, and perhaps worse than all of that is the actual promotion of Abuse. So we see the selling of indulgences. That, that, that is going to be the, the catalyst for uh, Martin Luther's beginning of the Reformation. Uh, in the 13th century, 14th century were uh, just increasing like crazy to the point of where they're selling them. 
Uh, So if you'll remember on our lesson on the Crusades, one of the things that Pope Urban II, as he's beginning to call, you know, for the Crusades, promises an indulgence. Uh, The the Roman Catholic idea of salvation isn't uh, Christ's righteousness is given to us on our behalf so that we're immediately declared perfect because when the Father looks at us, he sees his perfect son. That is not the idea in the Roman Catholic Church. The idea is grace isn't given to us, imputed to us. Grace is imparted to us. Slowly we grow in holiness through the taking of the sacraments and things like that. So we start at the bottom and, you know, we're a Christian for 20 years and we've taken mass so many times, but perfection is here and we're only here and we die. What do we do? Well, we have purgatory now, this kind of third realm where we're purged. The rest of the sin is purged from us. So if we're this holy, you know, 27% holy, you got to get the rest of it somewhere. And so you go to purgatory and you are cleansed for, you know, a thousand years, however many years until eventually you can enter eternity. And so an indulgence was, you know what? I'll just give you this piece of paper. Because you did this great act going on this crusade, let's just take out purgatory. Here's this piece of paper. You go, you die. Guess what? Straight into heaven. Okay, so originally it was this incredibly, incredibly valuable thing. So imagine uh, I have, you know, I went on a crusade, I get an indulgence, I've got it above my mantle, and everyone's coming to see it. I mean, how cool am I? I've got this really, really valuable thing. But then as the, as the years begin to go on, they begin to be written more and more easily. Now it's not something big like going on a crusade, it's just you pay a certain amount of money or things like that. Now my neighbors each have one. Well, mine is now lost in value. It's not cool anymore, so I need to get two. And then if they get two, I need to get three or four. And so we have kind of indulgence inflation happening over the years where the church gets to the point where they're just selling them. You just pay a certain amount of money and you get an indulgence. And so what, this ha- what, what happens to uh, the papacy, the papal entourage, the Pope and his guys in Avignon when they're, uh, again, they're not ruling over the church spiritually. Essentially, it's just a uh, lawyer's office. It is basically a massive business mechanism where they're spending all their time, right? They can't just send an email or, you know, a fax or something like that. They have to write out this piece of paper. The Pope has to sign it. They have to send it to all these people. And so that is essentially the mechanism of the papacy in the 14th century. You are just writing indulgences all the time, sending them all over the world. And that is your primary responsibility. You have this massive amount of things you need to get accomplished just uh, legally sending out all these different things. And so again, this, this, the, the, what is supposed to be the head of the Christian church, the one setting the example, the one primarily caring for uh, the church. They're just sold out to uh, political concerns. They're just selling indulgences. You see that. And you, we saw that in the example, example of the picture above. You can buy and get yourself out of purgatory. You can get your relatives out of purgatory. That began to be preached. Aunt Sue, you know, Aunt May, Uncle, you know, Craig or whatever, they're, you know, they weren't that great, you would admit that. And so don't you think they need some help getting out of purgatory? Why don't you give me you know, some coins or whatever and you get your get Aunt Sue out of purgatory. And then lastly, uh, pretty common financial corruption practice was uh, if you were rich and you went to a priest to confess, as you do in the Catholic Church, and you say, you know, Father, I've sinned, I've done this and this and this, and the priest knows you're rich, here's what he would typically do. Uh, you gotta do some penance, right, to prove your salvation. He'll absolve you of your sin, but you gotta do some things, whether, you know, pray some Hail Marys or something. And so the priest would say, you know, Wade, uh, I'm glad you're contrite. Why don't you pray a hundred million you know, Hail Marys and then you'll be forgiven. Wade has to say, I have a job and a family. I've got, I don't have time to pray a hundred million Hail Marys, but there's this monastery over here with all these monks just praying all the time anyway. Why don't I pay them and they will pray for me? 
Okay, so you have this priest that knows what he's going to do that, and so he's going to give him a ridiculous amount of things to do already so that, again, the, the monastery will be well-funded. And so you see that sort of just kind of financial corruption. So that is incredibly prevalent. So you see that as a, as a first factor. Again, this is obvious. The lay people aren't looking at the church and saying, they're so great, right? They haven't tricked everybody. Everybody can kind of see it's just a, a really uh, corrupt time for the church. So that's going to be the first factor. We'll look in a second of the people actually begin to start pushing back against that because it's not this hidden thing. Second factor will be social problems in the 14th century. The 14th century is, by any standard, one of the most difficult centuries in world history, the first thing that kind of happens in Western Europe is there's a massive shift in the climate, not global warming, uh, but there's this massive shift towards colder, wetter weather at the beginning of uh, the 14th century that is going to devastate crop growth. No supermarkets in that day. Right, so there's uh, rain, so much so in 1315 that they were comparing it to Noah's flood, and there's one of the worst crop failures in history. You know, one farmer loses a crop. That's a tragedy for his family and maybe for some people around him that depend on him. A whole continent loses their crop. That's a big deal. That's a natural disaster. And so that leads to famine and a massive, massive economic depression. And so if that wasn't bad enough, there's actually a horrible uh, cattle disease that kills about 80% of sheep and cattle all across Europe. And this leads to the Great Famine of 1315, where about 15%, sometimes estimates upward of 20% of the population died of starvation, sometimes leading to cannibalism, sometimes even leading to infanticide. Okay, so this is a really bad deal. People going mad, mad with hunger. I have a quote here, a contemporary report. Uh, there perished every day so many men and women, rich and poor, young and old, from every rank of society that the very air stank. So you see that there, there's no uh, realm of society that is... is uh, getting food while the other people are starving. It's affecting absolutely everyone. And this, of course, plunges them into an economic depression. And this, of course, leads to uh, tension, social tension, unrest. And we have several peasant revolts all throughout the 14th century in Germany and France and England and Italy all over. Kind of every decade, you have a massive peasant revolt just because there's people are starving to death. This is, a, this is a really difficult time. And along with that is just increased warfare. As if it wasn't a big enough deal that we're running out of food and our cattle are dying of some strange disease. There's uh, an increased warfare during this period. Armies lived off of food. So if you are retreating and another army is following you, you as the retreating army know they're going to eat all this food here that you're running through. So they would just burn the fields so that this army couldn't eat it, which again is just removing the little food that is there. When an army would be disbanded, uh, they would essentially form little biker gangs of you know, former soldiers that would just kind of terrorize local communities. France and England started the Hundred Years' War uh, at the beginning of the 14th century, which by the time it was over, uh, I guess a hundred years later, uh, by the time it was over, that two of the most wealthy nations in Europe were totally devastated. And in England, right after the Hundred Years' War, decided to start a civil war for another 30 years. Okay, so warfare is happening all the time within Europe. And then on top of that, there is a rise of the Turks, an incredibly militant, an incredibly radical group of uh, Muslims that are coming through. The Ottoman Turks emerging as a major power. They're going to conquer the Balkans, Greece, that area, and hold it for 200 years. That's where Constantinople will finally, finally be taken over and turned into Istanbul, renamed Istanbul in uh, the 14th century and the 15th century. And so uh, as a result, one, trade between Europe and Asia is totally blocked. You have the Turks right in the middle. It's effectively blocked, and you are under the constant, constant, constant fear 
of invasion. Imagine Canada was the opposite of Canada and scary and you know, constantly on our borders, right? Constant fear, the Turks would come in uh, and actually just do little raids around uh, coastal cities, would try and grab beautiful women to take them back to their sultan's harems and things like that. So there's this constant stress as if famine and disease and all these things wasn't stressful enough. We have uh, now outside forces that are trying to invade and worse than all of those others, combined is the Black Death, the bubonic bubonic plague that came at the beginning of the 14th century, estimated that when it hit Europe in 1347, in two to three years, 30%, sometimes estimated as high as 50% of Western Europe died. So it's around 100 million, the population, so that means 30 million, 40 million people in two years died. It's almost as bad as COVID. Uh, So in two years... And that includes a lot of priests and doctors, people that are going into uh, where the sick are, meaning to help, are dying. So you're losing a lot of your, your spiritual care. You're losing a lot of your medical care as well. I have a quote here from a contemporary account. As a, as a Turkish army was invading a Christian kingdom and the plague hits the Turkish army, this is what the uh, reporter says, uh, the, there should be a the there, the disease afflicted, uh, afflicted the army of the Tartars, that's the Turks, every day thousands and thousands died. It was as if arrows from heaven were raining on them. Medicine had no effect. The Tartars died as quickly as the disease appeared on their bodies. Swelling in the armpits, the groin, and then a dreadful fever. The Tartar army, overwhelmed by this disaster, turned away from their siege and had the putrefying corpses catapulted into the city, hoping to kill those inside. The Christians could not escape the torrent of bodies thrown into the city. They tried to dump the bodies into the sea, but there were too many. The stench of the corpses poisoned the air and the water, leaving scarcely one in a thousand able to flee. In most cities, there weren't enough living people to bury the dead. So this is an incredibly, incredibly terrible plague. It, it, it reduces the high life expectancy age of 34 to 17, so we're not even reaching adulthood by our standards is the average life expectancy. And it wasn't just one breakout. We have several breakouts uh, throughout the decades of the 14th century. So this is the time, this, for, this is all happening in the 14th century. This is a time when more than ever, we need spiritual leadership. We need people to point us to a God who is sovereign over these disasters. We need uh, people to minister the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ to us, give us uh, hope of the resurrection as we see death everywhere. And where is the papacy during this time? Avignon, they're in France, paying or, or raising taxes to pay for their castles to be built. So this is a time, again, where instead of... Uh, administering people, you know, ministering to the people. We're selling forgiveness. We're selling indulgences, things like that. When we need spiritual leaders, they're sold out to political concerns. So obviously, uh, again, this is very clear to the people that they've abandoned us. They, they've gone away. And so this is going to lead to incredible unrest and a massive dissatisfaction over the state of the church. And that's where we get to the third, movements actually within the church. So no secret, the church is is corrupt, the church has abandoned the people. And so there's two basic ways people within the church uh, deal with it. One is a movement away from the church, people actually saying, this whole thing is kind of rotten, we need to go start something else. Uh, Sometimes 
those people are pretty her heretical. Sometimes those people are more closer to the reformers. We'll look at a couple of those guys in a second. And then there's another kind of reaction where the people turn inward. They're saying, we're not getting anything from our priests or our bishops or our pope, but let's gather and let's uh, focus on our you know, inner spirituality, things like that. So we have kind of a mystic uh, revolution that happens. But let's look at that first group, those who want to kind of break away. Two main figures you may have heard of are John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, or John Hus, however you hear it. These, are, these two men are, are called the forerunners to the Reformation. So John Wycliffe, called the morning star of the Reformation. He was a, a philosopher from Oxford who drew his uh, beliefs from the scriptures and from the early church fathers. He, he was not crazy about uh, middle age scholasticism, things like that. He was, a, a, he was a elite. He was uh, rubbed shoulders with the nobility, so that's going to help him not get killed for a lot of his teachings and things like that. We'll see his fate in just a second. But his main critiques of the church, obviously critiquing the rampant corruption of the church. He, he had a huge concern for the morality of the clergy, uh, which is, I think, a good thing. He even encouraged his people, if your priest is in a mortal sin, withhold your tithes, right? Pretty bold move, uh, but telling, you know, don't tithe to them if they are in a state of mortal sin, if they're incredibly immoral. He rejected prayers for those in purgatory. He wanted to abolish the papacy and monasticism because they had no basis in scripture. So, good way to get on the bad side of the popes is to say, we should abolish the papacy, and that's what he does. Uh, he was super convinced, this is why uh, he's going to be called kind of a forerunner to the Reformation, that doctrine and spiritual life should come from the scriptures. A hyper-focus on you want to grow in your love for the Lord. You need to read and be transformed by the scriptures and saw the Bible as the authority for doctrine and was very skeptical about the authority of the Pope, things like that. And he wants to get the Bible in the hands of the lay people, in the hands of us. Remember, in, in that day, there are no translations. Every Bible in Europe is in Latin and the priests have it. You don't have it. You probably can't read if you're, uh, you probably can read now. Uh, but if you lived in that day, you maybe couldn't read and you certainly probably couldn't read Latin. Uh, and so the people don't have the Bible. He was super convinced we need the Bible in our, not just in our hands, but in our language. He says, Englishmen learns Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue and so did Christ's apostles. If they got to hear it, why can't we hear it in our own language? And so he actually begins to translate the Bible into English. Uh, so this is gonna, this is gonna really anger uh, the, hierarchy, or the hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church is Bible translation, not just with Wycliffe, but all throughout the Reformation. Uh, we're gonna see that's really one way to anger the church. Why is the church so anti-Bible translation? Why are they so anti? We, we don't want the Bible out of Latin. Well, first of all, uh, I'm glad you asked. First of all, uh, Latin is a way to kind of control worship. If every mass all throughout Europe is being said in Latin, we're not going to have any crazy, you know, pastor get up there and just go on a tangent. He's saying, right, what, what we're telling him to say. Secondly, there is a fear that if we give the Bible to the people in their own language, you know what's going to happen? They're just going to make up their own interpretations and we're going to have all these crazy groups that just start out of nowhere, which is true, how many denominations do we have in Protestantism? A billion, right? How did Mormons get started? Joseph Smith was holding a Bible and said, it doesn't mean what it's meant for 2,000 years. It means this, right? That's a true concern, but what are they missing there? They're depriving children of God from their food. They're depriving the people from being able to know their God, hear from his word. It's being filtered through a language they don't know and through people who most of them are corrupt. They're totally missing the point of God's revelation to his people, to know him. 
right, to know his will. And so though that is a true concern, they're missing really the point of the scriptures in the first place. It's not just to protect against the crazies. It's for us to know and walk with our God. So Wycliffe is super passionate about that, as most Protestants, all Protestants are, really. He denied transubstantiation, which, by the way, was kind of a new doctrine in his day. It was only about 100 years old. So in his mind, he was like, this is new. Uh, The idea that the Eucharist is transubstantiated into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he has a new view of the church. The church is not just that Catholic building and that Catholic bishop. The church, the true church, is all of the elect believers. In the same way that we would say, the church, the one true church, isn't just Parkway. It's Parkway and every other believer in McKinney that loves and trusts in Jesus Christ. That's who we're going to spend eternity with, right? We would all say that. Wycliffe is the one who first starts to develop that idea that the true church isn't just a physical building that you see or a priest or a bishop or whatever. It is those who the Lord has elected and who have a a transformed heart. Uh, And then he is the one who starts to highly emphasized preaching over the sacraments. The Sunday services should be where we preach and hear from God's word, where we hear the gospel, not just uh, give a short, uh, quick sermon and then just administer the sacrament. It's for the preaching of the gospel. I have a long quote there that you can read. I won't read for the sake of time. Uh, John Wycliffe isn't totally Protestant. He doesn't technically believe in justification by faith alone or doesn't really have an idea of assurance of salvation. You could still lose your salvation in his eyes for uh, a mortal sin or something like that. And uh, he has followers called the Lollards. We think that name comes from mumblers. It was a derogatory term who kind of continue his uh, mission after his death, continue translating uh, the scriptures. They were very, very militantly critical of uh, the Roman Catholic Church and eventually do, after his death, uh, lead a military revolt that was easily put down and just further lent uh, idea to the Roman Catholic, or credence to the Roman Catholic idea of, see what happens? Put the Bible in English, these guys rebel, right? So we gotta stop this, this whole Bible translation thing because all it's gonna do is not just create people who say, I don't wanna be a Roman Catholic, but people who literally rebel against uh, our authority and try and militarily put us down. And so the response of the church, again, he, he has political protection, but then 20 years after his death at the Council of Constance, his teachings are condemned, his body is exhumed, burnt, and his ashes are scattered in the river. So he's not gonna have the honor of a burial. So that's John Wycliffe, again, one of the, the morning star of the Reformation, one of the guys that uh, we, as we look at the Reformation, we see all these reformers and say, we agree with them. And then we look a bit further, we think, oh, These guys were kind of giving the first calls that eventually the reformers would answer. And then the second primary one is Jan Hus, a uh, bohemian from modern day Czech Republic. There's still a statue of him today in Prague. If you go to Prague, you guys guys have all been to Prague. You've seen the statue of uh, Jan Hus. Uh, He, uh, again, becomes kind of a university professor, rises through the ranks, begins to preach uh, to lay people as he's heavily influenced by Wycliffe's teachings, and then he uh, gets caught up in some uh, political problems. His bishop, the Bishop of Prague, who eventually, originally likes him, is kind of forced by the Pope to condemn Wycliffe and therefore Jan Hus with him. Uh, And so he's condemned, and the Catholic Church thinks originally, this is kind of going to say, this is... Whoa, I just had a small stroke. Uh, This is going to set him straight, 
right? Uh, we're going to, sorry about that. Uh, we're going to condemn him. We're going to excommunicate him. And he'll say, okay, I'm sorry. I'll come back. I'll fall in line. But it doesn't. It only emboldens him to go preach uh, more. And he actually goes and preaches to people on the countryside, so begins to gain followers. But uh, similar to Wycliffe, Wycliffe he has uh, an idea of the scriptures being the highest authority. Most of his theology isn't very developed. It's very negative. It's just what the Catholics are doing wrong. He doesn't really say a whole lot of positive stuff. That's why uh, Wycliffe and Huss are both, uh, they, they're not going to make as big of an impact as Luther and Calvin and other guys in the Reformation. They're only really going to point out errors. They're not going to say, here's what we should do uh, instead. They do a little bit, but not a whole lot. So authority of the scriptures, the Pope can't establish doctrine and that, that contradicts scripture. He attacks indulgences. He hates the abuse of selling of indulgences. In fact, Martin Luther is going to almost identically copy his, uh, his critiques of the selling of indulgences. And then he follows Wycliffe's teaching on the elect church, says this, therefore the Pope is not the head nor the cardinals, uh, the whole body of the holy Catholic and universal church. Uh, Only Christ is the head and his predestined are the body and each is a member of that body. This is, here's why that is so important. When Luther and when these other reformers are beginning to bring in everyone's eyes a new teaching, the reformers, and we would say, no, it's just a biblical teaching that has been hidden that no one knows because no one knows the language and it's kind of trapped by this Roman Catholic uh, corrupt idea of just, we'll keep the scriptures, we'll tell you what they mean. Uh, For someone to say, okay, I'm gonna leave the Roman Catholic Church and follow Luther, when you have this teaching of, let me just tell you what the church is. You're not leaving the church and following some heretical group. The true church are those who have been elected by God and whose hearts are transformed. It's not those in a building. And so when you have people that actually have this view of, oh, I'm, I'm going to the true church, that's much helpful than I'm leaving Christianity and following something else. You see that? That's why that, that, that teaching is so important. And so Wick, or, uh, Jan Hus is going to meet a, a bit of a worse demise than Wycliffe, again, at the Council of Constance. This is when that whole three pope situation gets kind of figured out. Uh, he gets offered safe passage. Uh, that was a common thing where there would be a heretic. You'd say, look, you can have, you can, come to this council safely. No one's going to arrest you on the way. You can defend yourself and then you can go back home safely. Then we'll try and arrest you. That happens with Luther. Uh, So Huss comes safely and then they say, just kidding. And you can't defend yourself and uh, recant from everything you believe. He says no. uh, And his priestly garments are in front of everyone, ripped off of him. He is condemned as a heretic and he is eventually burnt at the stake. Uh, burnt alive, his ashes again are thrown in the river with Wycliffe so that no one could bury his bones. Uh, and after his death, there was a national protest in Bohemia and riots all throughout Prague. He actually had some pretty militant fighters as well, which again uh, lead to this idea of see what happens when you follow scripture alone, the, the Catholic idea of you just become radical and you eventually re, uh, reach this uprising. So Wycliffe, Huss, they're both able to be suppressed and then we'll see uh, in just a century later, the reformers, uh, it's gonna be, the, the dam's finally gonna break and they're gonna call, not just for pure morals, but pure doctrine. Notice that's, that's what Huss and Wycliffe start to do. They aren't just saying, stop living with a concubine. They're saying these doctrines that you're teaching are actually unbiblical. 
Okay, so they're going for uh, morals and pure doctrine. So that, those are the people who are pushing uh, uh, against the church and actually trying to, to leave the church. And then we have this second group uh, of, of kind of more mystical that turn inwards. They don't want to critique the church. They just want to say, you know what? You go do your crazy thing. We're going to do our thing. And so we have these groups uh, called the Devito Moderna, the, the modern way of serving God, which is kind of the, the, the banner that these groups went under. Uh, that strongly emphasize personal devotion to God and uh, social engagement. So again, they're not critiquing priests. They're just saying, you know what? We're just going to do our things. Kind of like what we would call small groups. They would gather together, they would pray, uh, and they would kind of turn inward, if you will. And so one of the most famous groups to come out of this big movement is called the Brethren of the Common Life. Most of them uh, lay people not priests or anything like that. Key characteristic, they hated uh, mere formal religion, just going through the motions uh, and pretending that it's you know, doing something and they have this deep desire for personal piety that spreads all over Europe. Uh, and uh, again, the massive effect this has on the Reformation is it begins to separate your spiritual life from the hierarchical church. So again, whereas uh, before this kind of movement, you have, you know, you want to grow in holiness, you go take the Eucharist, you go to confession. And now there's movements say, no, you want to grow in holiness, let's gather together and let's pray and let's seek the Lord and things like that. So you see, it begins to separate. I can still be spiritual. I can still love the Lord without being involved in this kind of corrupt mechanism. Again, that is going to be really important as people are beginning to hear these reformers and want to follow a group that is going to be going away from the physical buildings of the church. So the most famous of all of these guys is Thomas Akempis. He wrote uh, The Imitations of Christ, which was the devotional book of the Middle Ages. Here's a quote. If a man knows what it is to love Jesus and to regard him, or to regard himself for the sake of Jesus, then he is really blessed. We have to abandon all we love for the one that we love, for Jesus wants us to love him only above all other things. The love of creatures is fickle and unreliable, but the love of Jesus is trustworthy and enduring. The man who clings to created things will fall with them when they fall, but a man who embraces Jesus will be upheld forever. It is Jesus whom you must love and keep to be your friend. When all else fades away, he will not leave you nor let you perish at the end. Whether you will or no, you must one day leave everything behind. Keep yourself close to Jesus in life as well as death. Commit yourself to his faithfulness for he only can help you when everything else falls away. Now, imagine hearing that. Remember everything we've talked about thus far, the hopelessness of the plague and crop failure, the corruption of the church, and then you hear a paragraph like that. Don't you see that draw to come? We can pursue, we can love the Lord outside of this seemingly corrupt mechanism that is, is more focused on political, uh, political things than it is serving us in our spiritual walk with the Lord. So again, that begins to separate spiritual devotion with the Roman Catholic Church. Two more. Uh, social or uh, uh, philosophical movement called the Renaissance. You've all heard these. Uh, the Renaissance or this idea of getting back to the sources. So from the 14th century to the 17th century, there's this massive cultural movement of reviving or a rebirth of the Greek classics of Roman civilization and art and politics and academia, things like that. If you go to, you know, a museum in Europe somewhere, you'll see a billion paintings of David and Goliath and Jesus on the cross. And then you'll, you'll turn the corner and go to the Renaissance section. And it's like, you know, 
a banana or a food. You know, there's this movement of getting back, you know, away from, we don't have to be stuck in a uh, uh, medieval scholastic mind, this kind of, what we, what we looked at a lot with Thomas Aquinas, this reviving of Aristotle, logic chopping. They didn't really like this kind of narrow views. They wanted to go back to the early church fathers, back to these uh, Plato and these original uh, Greek writings. So this is this big movement. Later, Renaissance kind of has a bad uh, idea in our mind, so does humanism, because later it's going to have a massive rejection of Christianity and it's going to come in through the Enlightenment. But early on, it was not that way. Every early Renaissance thinker basically was a Christian. And we're not in any way thinking they were moving away from Christianity. Rather, they think they're reviving something that was lost. And so uh, almost all of them were originally Christian. The scholars, Renaissance scholars, were called humanists. So we looked at Petrarch when we looked at uh, the, the Babylonian captivity of the church. He is actually one of the first Renaissance thinkers, Francisco Petrarch, uh, called Petrarch. Uh, in the 14th century, he uh, loves Augustine, loves reading Augustine. Again, that's going to stir his heart for kind of going back to the early church fathers, getting out of this uh, kind of medieval period of uh, thinkers that he considered just, again, logic choppers, sterile, things like that, this Aristotelian form of Christianity. And he's going to popularize this idea of old uh, scholasticism, right, the medieval tradition versus uh, new humanism, the classics, getting back to the original text, something that's going to be massive in Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And one of the things, probably the main thing is, as far as the Reformation that this does is gets us uh, back from Latin to Greek, right? What language is the New Testament written in? Greek, right? So as these men are wanting to go and revive the Greek language, which had basically died away, there's only a handful of Greek scholars. Petrarch himself had several Greek writings, but he couldn't read them. He didn't know Greek well enough. They're going to revive the study of Greek, which as we look to the scriptures, there's going to be a massive reviving of the study of the New Testament in its original language. Uh, Jerome, the early church father, translates the Bible into Latin, and it is in Latin for a thousand years. And the church is dependent on Latin, or Jerome getting his translation right, which which sometimes he doesn't do, right? Latin, you don't really have a word for repentance. So Jerome translates repentance, do penance, right? Pretty big mistake. We got to do all these things rather than just come before the Lord and repent. And so a lot of the Renaissance scholars looking at the original text actually begin to critique the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate, as it's called, that had been the church's scriptures for a thousand years. Again, kind of undermining the authority of the church as it had been all throughout the Middle Ages, and by far the most famous uh, humanist is a man called Erasmus. We'll see him as we look in the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in the Reformation. Uh, he, it's, it's said that he laid the egg that Luther hatched. Uh, he began to write uh, best-selling satire, mocking monasticism and scholasticism. He hated the corruption of the church. And most importantly, he translates or writes uh, the Greek New Testament. That's by far his greatest contribution. He doesn't write it. Paul and others wrote it. He translates it into Greek. So now we have the Bible in its original language a year, published a year before the Reformation. So now the reformers can have in their hands uh, the scriptures, the New Testament in its original language. Uh, so that's his massive contribution. He actually is really embarrassed of the Reformation. He's going to write against Luther in the future. He doesn't realize what he started until it's too late. But now you, you see that. So the reformers are going to say, with the spirit of the age, this Renaissance spirit, uh, this Renaissance spirit, we're going to go back to the early church fathers. 
So when the church says, you're straying from church teaching, the reformers are gonna say, no, we're saying what the early church fathers said, you're the ones that have strayed from the original church teaching. So you see the, the mass, I mean, Augustine is quoted all throughout Calvin's writings. You'll see the early church fathers, they, they loved the early church fathers. So they wanna go back to the original, uh, original church and then obviously this movement back to the scriptures. The Latin Vulgate had been the Bible for uh, a thousand years and there are some of these uh, translation problems that the church is gonna move back to. Most uh, men like Oryx Zwingli uh, is reading his Greek New Testament when he begins to catch this uh, Reformation spirit. He's one of the main reformers and it's, it, a lot of it comes from just reading the scriptures. Martin Luther, when he is told to recant, says to uh, the people trying him, just show me in the scriptures where I'm wrong and I'll happily recant. But if you're just going to say, I'm rebelling against church authority or things like that, I'm sorry, you have to show me with the scriptures. So there's this massive movement back to the scriptures that's kind of all over Europe, but then especially is going to lead to this reformation in the church. And then lastly, technological advancements. Uh, for, kind of like I said at the beginning in our intro, for a massive revolution to happen, you typically have ideas coupled with a, a massive technological advancement. So pre-social media and all those different things, you know, pre-TV even, if you have an idea, you gotta write it in a book and people need to pick up that book and read it and agree with you and then tell their friends about it and that can take a while. Now, LeBron James can tweet something and it'll get covered on the news and the president may address it, right? So ideas can spread like crazy because of this new technological advancement, right? We have social media, things like that. Mostly bad ideas spread quickly, sometimes good ideas. It's the same with the Reformation and the printing press. The printing press is the technological advancement of the day. Before the printing press, if you wanna copy something, you had to copy it with your hand and that took forever. Uh, and then you just had one copy and then you had to make another one. And then you had to make another one and you had to send it to your friends and one of them would drop it in the mud and that one's ruined so you gotta go do it again, right? That takes so, so, so long, which makes uh, things really expensive as well uh, and really difficult to distribute. So for ideas to spread, for Wycliffe's ideas to spread, he literally has to have a big following and he's got to write really quickly and they've got to get out there and it's, it's still incredibly slow. After the printing press, you can print uh, 3,600 pages a day. That is a massive shift uh, in the 15th century with Johannes Gutenberg and his printing press. Apparently, uh, printing was invented in China in the 5th century, but they just didn't tell us about it. So we're 1,000 years after them. Uh, so Gutenberg invents the printing press. They eventually keep it uh, in uh, Mainz, Germany. Tim will know the pronunciation, he'll correct me. Uh, but they were keeping it secret, but then the city got invaded and they were like, what is this? And they took it and they distributed it. So by Luther's day, there's printing presses all over. So this again, dramatically reduces the cost of uh, books and things like that. Ideas can now spread at a much, much, much more rapid pace. And it's, what it does is it kind of creates a critical reading culture. If, if books are super rare, if you have a book or two in your home, you're gonna kind of revere it as this very special thing. You're not naturally going to read it, critique it, this author is making a terrible argument, this book is bad. You're not gonna do that if it's incredibly expensive, right? And, and it's incredibly rare. But if you can get books, you can get ideas more quickly, it's going to create a bit of a more critical spirit. Again, think of how important that is when there are reformers critiquing 
the Roman Catholic Church. It is incredibly helpful to have the sort of critiquing spirit. And Luther's, eye, or Luther's ideas, Calvin's ideas can spread quickly, can be smuggled into other countries without him visiting there. That can't happen with men like Wycliffe and men like Jan Hus. Their writings, it would take forever. They would have to copy it and basically spend their lives doing that. But now with the printing press, the 95 theses that Luther nails to the door can be sent over Europe seemingly overnight. It can just take a few months for it to spread all over Europe. The Reformation would not have happened without the printing press, or it would have taken 90 years or something like that. And now, because we have a means of taking their ideas, taking their theological teachings, taking their critiques of the theology that, is being, uh, that has been believed for thousands of years or 1,500 years, it can spread all across Europe. So we have this technological advancement that is, has a massive ramification for the Reformation. So that is the fifth factor. Again, I know this is a lot of history, but this is all the kindling that is there, that is waiting. We just need a fiery German, right, to set it on fire, right? We have the corruption of the church, social unrest. Again, just, just imagine for one second, the, look at our culture, the, the terror of uh, disease that's real, but isn't killing <laughs> one third of us, right? Imagine that uh, along with uh, no spiritual oversight. In fact, the opposite, corruption and things like that. We have people actually being to push back this desire for spirituality that's kind of separating from the church hierarchy. And then this idea of going back to the sources. These people are saying, I wanna go back to the early church fathers, back to the scriptures. And then now we have a means with the printing press of distributing those ideas. All those are, are there and the next week, with Zach, I believe we are going to see Luther show up, light it on fire, and we're going to see the Protestant Reformation begin. So let me pray for us, and then we will have some time for questions. Father, we love you. We thank you that your church isn't dependent on man, that you're sovereign over it, and you always have been. And so now we can look back at church history and see that, and we can look to our day and realize no matter how dark it may seem to us, you will preserve your church. The gates of hell will never prevail against it, and that should bring us hope. We can be bold in our proclamation of the gospel in our day because we know we, we've already been guaranteed the victory. One day, Jesus Christ will return, wipe away every tear, make all things new. And so we praise you that history teaches that lesson, that we look forward in hope knowing that uh, you are true and that you will one day return. So we pray that that would come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.